Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. And all of you online, Facebook, YouTube, on the downtown homepage, we miss you, and we're glad you're still joining in. Thanks for flexing your schedule to do night church. And all of you in the room tonight, it is just so good to see you and be with you. I want to thank you and echo some of the words that Pastor Jason said. I want to thank you for being faithful over these last 12 weeks. You're an incredibly resilient church. And I am proud to be numbered among you and to be members of the body of Christ with you. Thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your generosity. That number of donated groceries is 12,000 pounds of groceries. And they continue to come in. That's you guys, you did that. And they continue to come in and I just have loved, I've been so moved by the phone calls and emails and text messages, different ones of you saying, hey, if you know of a person or a family in need, let me know, we'd like to help with rent or groceries or utilities and you've done that and we as the church have done that. Thank you for your faithfulness, thank you for your generosity. I'm also aware that some major life events has happened for some of you during the COVID quarantine. Anyone graduated, any graduates, high school, college, if you graduated this year, would you stand? We just wanna cheer for you. Anybody, come on, yeah, woo, all right. Congrats. Now I know of at least one couple, but did anybody get engaged during the quarantine? Come on, AJ. I'm looking at you, AJ, stand up. I know you're tall, but it's better if you stand, Chris. Come on, you can stand by each other, that's great, there you go. We know you're hanging out, yeah, that's great. Now did anybody get married in this COVID quarantine? Matt and Janelle, David and Amanda. <laughs> I know that these people are probably not here, but some of you even had babies during the COVID quarantine. Others of you, that'll be nine months from now. But the those of you that had babies, we're, we're grateful, we're rejoicing with you. Amen, amen, amen. Well, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. We're gonna continue our series through the book of James tonight, but let's open with prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks and that your word to us is sometimes like a hammer that breaks up our hearts. Your word to us is sometimes like water that cleanses us and softens us. Your word is sometimes like a light, maybe a blinding light. But God, we just wanna to say tonight, we welcome all of it. Let your word do its work in us tonight. We pray to the glory of God the Father through Christ the Son, by the power of the Spirit, and everybody said, amen. About 13 years ago or so, I remember uh, on my way to this trip, I was speaking at this thing in Chicago, and I had, my first book had just come out, and, and uh, the publisher said, oh, well, we'd like to arrange a big meeting for you, and I was feeling like, you know, like pretty big stuff, and so as soon as my flight landed in Chicago, flights, remember that, remember travel, anyway. Uh, as soon as my flight landed, I turned on my phone and checked the voicemail, and to my great dismay, it was the publisher saying, actually, we don't have any time uh, to meet. We won't be able to be with you uh, at all on this trip. And I knew right away that you know, the numbers weren't good. My mom had bought a few copies, but not many other people, and so the publisher just really didn't have much time for me, and I knew the message that I was receiving. And so I was a little sad. I, I made it to my hotel, but it was before the check-in time, so I couldn't get in the room, and I'm leaving my bags at the front desk, and I thought, well, 
what am I going to do now? And I was expecting to be, you know, treated to a nice lunch. And, and I thought, well, I, I, so I just decided to walk down the street. And uh, this is pre-Uber. And I walked, and the closest thing I could find was like a Whole Foods or something with a cafeteria in there. And uh, I went in, I got my tray, and all of a sudden it hit me. I had that middle school cafeteria feeling where everybody else was there with a friend or a colleague or a family member, and it all seemed like they were having the time of their life, just <laughs> with their cafeteria trays, getting their salad and macaroni or whatever. And here I was, I had a book tucked in under my arm so I wouldn't look completely awkward, you know. Actually, I'm not sure if that helped. But the idea was to sort of, you know, occupy myself. Like, I, like this is what I do. I just go to Whole Foods cafeterias and read a book and eat lunch by myself. But inside, I'm having all of these memories of, coming to the States as a middle schooler, as an immigrant family, or arriving you know, years later, coming back to, to college, coming back to America by myself, and walking in the college cafeteria like, where's my friends? Oh yeah, don't have any yet, you know? Just that, and in my head, it's that song from The Little Mermaid. I wanna be where the people are. I wanna see them, see them dancing. And I sat down. And ate my lunch and read my book or pretended to. Look, the truth is none of us like feeling on the outside. None of us like feeling like we're excluded, like we've missed out. And maybe one of the hardest things about the quarantine has been all the things that we felt like we're missing out on. Wait a minute, I didn't get to go to this. I didn't. Who else is getting together? I know my small group is secretly meeting and they finally didn't invite me. Because now I wouldn't know. C.S. Lewis the great English author in the 1940s and 50s wrote this about something he called the inner ring, the desire to belong to this secret, exclusive group. Lewis said, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is, the, is most skillful in making a man who is not yet very bad do very bad things. And he goes on to describe how the more we claw to belong, the act, actually the worse we uh, end up achieve, we don't achieve it. It ends up being elusive from us. And he says, until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. There's something insidious that happens in us where because of our own fear of being rejected, we become very skilled at excluding others. We become very skilled at rejecting others, at drawing different lines and drawing smaller circles. It really comes out of our own desire to be important, to matter, to be powerful. And out of our own fear, we say, well, let me draw a different circle. And I'm sorry, you're not invited. This was what was happening in the church that James was writing to. James is a, is a letter written in the wisdom tradition. If you've read the book of Proverbs, you'll say some of these phrases sound familiar. If you've read in the Psalms or the, even the book of Job, wisdom sounds like this. But James's letter, no surprise, sounds a lot like Jesus's teachings. And James's letters, a lot of his sayings echo what Matthew's gospel contains. But James is writing to a church where these people, as Jews in a Roman empire, they already were on the edges. But now to be Christians, to be Jewish followers of Jesus, was to really, really be on the outside. Because people had no category for them. And they were like, who, we, we know the Jewish people, we've kind of, but who are these new? Is this some sort of cult? 
And these were a people who were hungry to be respected, hungry to be validated. And so what these people began doing is they began to look for opportunities to be associated with important people. And this is what we see happening right off the bat in James 2, verse 1. He says, my brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're like, calm down, James. That's a bit strong, don't you think? You deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ who has been resurrected in glory. Friends, tonight the word of God comes to us strongly. It says favoritism is a contradiction to faith in Jesus. Favoritism is a contradiction to faith in Jesus, not only to our faith, but it's a contradiction to his faithfulness because favoritism doesn't look like the kind of life Jesus lived. It doesn't look like the kind of love Jesus showed. Well, what does favoritism look like? It's an interesting word, actually, that's used here in the book of James. It's a Greek word that we can't really find other uses outside of the New Testament. And it seems to be one of those few words that Christians made up. Isn't that fun? Christians made up some words. And what they were trying to do is, is they were trying to translate the meaning of a Hebrew word for partiality. And the Hebrew idea of, this, of partiality is to receive the face. Hebrew, if you know a little bit about it, it's a very picture language. So to show favoritism or partiality was to receive the face. Oh, what a face. This face, but not that face. And you can think of all the times in the Psalms where the psalmist is saying to God, don't turn your face from me. Or please turn your face toward me. Hear my cry. Look upon me. Favoritism looks like this. It means receiving the face of someone else for the wrong reasons. James gives us some examples. Verse two, he says, imagine. Imagine two people coming into your meeting. One has a gold ring and fine clothes while the other is poor, dressed in filthy rags. And he says, in verse three, then suppose that you were to take special notice of the one wearing fine clothes saying, here's an excellent place, sit here. But to the poor person, you say, stand over there or here, sit at my feet. Then he says, wouldn't you have shown favoritism among yourselves and become evil-minded judges? This is what favoritism looks like. Favoritism looks like giving preferential treatment to a person in a position of power in order to gain from their status. I'm trying to spell this out for us tonight, okay? Favoritism is about giving preferential treatment to a person in power in order to gain from their status. Listen, we have it in our minds. And if I'm honest with you, I had it in my mind that favoritism meant having some friends that you enjoy better than others. That's not what James is talking about. Enjoying the company of these people, but not so much. James can't be bothered about our little friendship interests. He's talking about preferential treatment to people in power so that you can gain from them. This is what James is dealing with. It looks like that. So why is it a contradiction to the faith? I want to tell you tonight just two reasons from James's letter why favoritism is a contradiction to the faith. Verse five, my dear brothers and sisters, listen, hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? Hasn't God chosen the poor as heirs of the kingdom? He has promised to those who love him. Why is favoring the powerful a contradiction to the faith? Number one, because it runs counter to the character 
of God. It runs counter to the very character of God. In Deuteronomy, the great book that is quoted most often in the Gospels and the New Testament, Deuteronomy says, because the Lord your God is the God of all gods and the Lord of all lords, the great, mighty, awesome God, now listen to this, okay, who doesn't play favorites and doesn't take bribes. You're like, that's right. But then, verse 18, but he enacts justice for orphans and widows. He loves immigrants, giving them food and clothing. If you're paying attention to the text, you're scratching your head a little bit because we like to say, God doesn't play favorites. Hey man, let's just talk about every life being valuable. Right after saying that he doesn't play favorites, he tells us who God favors. If you're listening, it's right there in the Bible. Right there. You're like, oh, wait a minute, glad I don't know about this. Leviticus 18 goes on to say that. But let's jump to the New Testament. James had a mother who sang. Mary's song is one of the first Christian songs. I love worship songs. I love songwriting. Imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus, the mother of James, singing a lullaby, only it didn't sound like the lyrics of any lullaby I've ever heard. It was less of a choir special at King's College of Cambridge and much more like Rage Against the Machine. If you're uncomfortable with anthems of revolution, you shouldn't read Mary's song. It's ironic that we've dressed it up in the halls of power, in high culture. We've rubbed off all of the rough edges of Mary's song. This is a song of a peasant Jewish woman who knew what it was like to be kicked to the corner of an empire who said, my God will one day bring the mighty down from their thrones. That's what Mary sang. You don't think James heard his mama singing at night? Luke 1, verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones. I just can't hear that as a sweet lullaby. And lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. Stop there, Mary, don't be so controversial. And sent the rich away empty-handed. Ouch, Mary. I thought you were this sweet little, you know, mother of Jesus. Mary, it's a little bit rough, don't you think? I think Jesus heard the song of his mother. The very first sermon Jesus preached, he went to the synagogue, unrolled the scroll, knowing fully well what he was doing, picked the scroll of Isaiah, went to Isaiah 61 and said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord has anointed me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. We always want to qualify it. You know, we like the Beatitudes in Matthew, brother, Pastor Glenn, doesn't it say the poor in spirit are blessed? Well, that's what Matthew says. Luke wants us to not make any mistakes. Luke wants us to know that the arrival of the Messiah is a reversal of the kingdoms of this world. And so when Jesus says the Beatitudes in Luke's gospel, it's not anything we could possibly mistake for a private inner spiritual experience. He says, blessed are the poor, full stop, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we're squirming and we're saying, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just thought we just should treat everybody the same. Like no favor. The opposite of favoritism is neutrality or evenness. Friends, let me say something to you. If we were all still living in the garden of Eden, then yes, that would be true. 
But in a fallen world where there are such a thing as oppressed people, where there is such a thing as the poor and the marginalized, the opposite of favoritism is not neutrality. It is the tilting of favor towards those who have been pushed down. Make no mistake about it. God says it over and over and over again in the Bible. If there's one group of people where he's turned his face toward, whose face he is receiving, it's the face of those who've been pushed down. The face of the ones who've been buried by poverty and oppression and exploitation. The Bible's problem with favoritism is not that it is an uneven distribution of attention. The Bible's problem with favoritism is that we tend to favor the wrong people. (laughs) We tend to favor the wrong people. We tend to keep looking for the powerful, the movers and the shakers. I do it. You do it. We all do it. And over and over again, the scripture says, (laughs) I'm not calling you to neutrality. I'm calling you to tilt your favor towards those who've been pushed down. So who are these people? You know, we, (laughs) early on in the quarantine, we wanted the slogan of like, we're all in this together. (laughs) And I saw a tweet a few weeks ago, a certain celebrity who'd, who finally described where they'd been spending the last you know, two and a half, three months, they're like, I was away on a vacation in an Irish castle. This quarantine has been like a fairy tale, you know? And, and my friend somewhat cynically quote tweets it and said, hashtag, we're all in this together. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah I'm, not, I'm not quite living in an Irish castle, sorry. You know? We, 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 we want to believe that a pandemic is the great leveler. I, I'm not sure it's the great leveler. I actually think it's been the great revealer. It's been the great revealer. It's revealed that some people are disproportionately affected by this. Some of you have not had the luxury of working from home, playing with your virtual backgrounds on Zoom. <laughs> some of you have had to show up or you wouldn't get paid. Some of you put yourself at risk because you had to keep being at the grocery store, driving the buses. It's real. The pandemic, I hope, has opened our eyes that we're not all quite in this together in the same way. That there is an unevenness. There are people who are forced in tight living quarters. But we know from this week alone one of the great oppressed groups in our country are African Americans. And we don't want to say it. We don't want to admit it. But when you see a video like we did a few weeks ago of Ahmaud Arbery being hunted down by men in trucks and gunned down in cold blood, God have mercy. And when we see a video like we did this week of an African-American man with a knee on his neck for nine minutes while he cried out, I can't breathe. I wonder if we're listening. I wonder if we're paying attention. I know what you're saying. Glenn, come on, come on, come on, come on. Don't be so divisive. I I know because I got the email. Listen, friends, when we speak up for the mistreatment of minorities, we are not being divisive. We are being united to the very heart of God himself. (laughs) 
I have no interest in being political, but I have every interest. I have committed my life to being biblical. And when I find that the God of the Bible has turned his face to the lowly, to the poor, to the marginalized and the oppressed, if I turn away, I'm no longer with that God. But if his face is favoring the poor, he says so. Jesus said so. The word for blessed are the poor is favored are the poor. Why? Why would you say, Jesus, doesn't that sound insulting? No, Jesus is saying the poor are favored because I came for them. I came for them. And if you want to be with me, then you better shift. This is why James says favoritism is a contradiction to the faith. You can't confess faith in Jesus and not be where Jesus is. Verse eight, I had hoped for a happier text when we got back together. (laughs) Verse eight, you do well when you really fulfill the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. But when you show favoritism, you're committing a sin. And by that same law, you are exposed as a lawbreaker. The second reason why favoritism is a contradiction is because it falls short. It falls short of our calling as God's people. A couple years ago when we did our series on the Ten Commandments, we said the Ten Commandments reveals the character of God, but it reveals our calling as the people of God. And so James is saying when you break the law, it's not just like, ooh, bummer for you, you've busted a technicality here. No, it's that you've fallen short of our calling. And James wants us to know our calling as the people of God. The law doesn't work like a pile of rocks, one commentator said, where you can just sort of say, well, I, was, I did pretty good with this rock and this rock, but I missed this one over here. He says, no, the law is not like a pile of rocks. The, the law is like a sheet of glass. If you put a crack in it, it's not just a crack in it. The whole glass is broke. How can we reflect the image of God as a mirror into the world if it's cracked? And James is saying, don't you see that as the church, we're supposed to reflect and reveal the very character of God to the world. You can't brag to me about all the ways that you're so good and you give money and you do this and you do that. But if you show favoritism, there's a crack in the mirror that's supposed to show the world what God looks like. That's what James is trying to say. Take it seriously. Take it seriously. Then in verse 12, in every way then speak and act as people who will be judged by the law of freedom. What's the law of freedom? We'll say it simply tonight. It's the law of love. It's the law of loving the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And then he ends with a very strange verse. Most commentaries will will break up the section of James 2 right at the end here after verse 13. And it's such a strange one because we, we quote this one, but we forget that it actually belongs in a larger section of James 2. Verse 13. There will be no mercy in judgment for anyone who hasn't shown mercy because mercy overrules judgment. I'm sorry, James, what? I thought we were talking about favoritism. What are you going on about with mercy and judgment? Here's the deal. (laughs) They had favored the rich because they had judged the poor. There's a distortion of the Torah and you see it in the Old Testament even in Job's friends. There's a distortion of the teaching of the Old Testament that says, if you are righteous, you will be blessed. And that blessing will show up in material ways. And if you are poor, you must be wicked. Now, I know, you're you're listening to that, you're like, oh, that's so archaic. How barbaric. I would never think like that. (laughs) I know. Except that we do. 
Because how many times do we see someone who falls upon hard times and we walk away going, whoo, what a mess. And we say, whoo, that is a sketch neighborhood. I bet they just made some bad choices in their life. Guys, can the word of God be sharper than a two-edged sword tonight? How many times do we function like that? This is why James is saying, your favoritism is really because of your judgment. And your judgment is not just. Your judgment is wicked. You have made up excuses for why these people, we have all these reasons why somebody else's life isn't working. Well, if they would have just gone to college. Well, if they would have just put money in savings. Well, if they would have just not resisted. We have reasons why someone else is suffering. And James says, you don't want to play that game. You don't want to play that game because in the end, mercy triumphs over judgment. And even if they were poor because they were lawbreakers, you're a lawbreaker too. And at the end of the day, when you recognize your need for God's mercy, you lose the need to judge or exclude others. The mercy of God, it's not the pandemic that's the great leveler, it's the mercy of God that is the great equalizer. It's the mercy of God that brings us all down to the foot of the cross and says, oh my God, I need your mercy. And if I need your mercy, what right do I have to judge and exclude someone else from your mercy? It's the mercy of God that triumphs over all judgment. And the church, friends, the church, the church is supposed to be a community defined by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. So here we are on Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost, the day where the Spirit falls and they leave their speaking in the languages of other people's regions and cultures. Isn't that amazing? The chaos of Babel gets broken by the Spirit at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit there, there, there's not a Holy Spirit for African Christians and a Holy Spirit for Asian Christians and a Holy Spirit for European Christians and a Holy Spirit for our friends in Latin America who love Jesus. And we've got all our, just our regional Holy Spirits. There is one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism, one church, and we belong together. <laughs> friends, the answer is not to make America something better. I'm with you in working for our society to change, but can I tell you that God's answer to the brokenness of the world is, <laughs> wait for it, is to launch the church. God's answer to the brokenness of the world is not to say, let me give you, let's fix it. Look, all of that's good. We should be active in society. We should take up causes. We should try to work. To, but, but let me tell you something. The way the kingdom of God arrives on earth as it is in heaven is not by any one of these nations represented by the flag. It's when the church of Jesus Christ begins to look like, talk like, smell like, love like Jesus himself. That's the answer. That's the answer. The church is a community defined by the mercy of God. And the invitation for us tonight is, would you receive this mercy? And would you let it make you undone? Would you let the mercy of God melt your heart? 
Would you let the mercy of God lead you to repentance? I need to repent. Would you let the mercy of God lead you towards a kind of radical welcome toward others? That's what we need. We need the mercy of God to push us outward. I love the the black Scottish theologian, John Swinton. He says, when Jesus sits on the margins, (laughs) the margins become the center. (laughs) I just love that. He says, it's not quite right to say that Jesus sits with the marginalized because if Jesus is there, it's not the margins anymore. It's the center. Sometimes I wonder, we're like, I want to be where you are. We sang it tonight. And Jesus is like, that's so great. Me too. I'm going to be over here. And we're like, oh, oh no, I was just thinking you and me, Jesus. He's like, yeah, I'm over here. Join me. Join me. When Jesus sits with the marginalized, the whole axis shifts. That becomes the center. And guess who's on the margin now? And so all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the invitation for us is to let the mercy of God begin to break down these walls, begin to tear down our divisions, and begin to turn us outward. Would you bow your heads with me tonight?